Welcome back to another edition of the Records and Riffs podcast. Very excited about this in, this episode in particular because it is a uh, it's a genre spanning episode, and there's a whole bunch to get to. Um, I'm joined by the uh, co-editor in chief of Relics Magazine, which is a publication that I've submitted a couple of pieces of work for, and also he is the founder of JamBands.com. Has done so much really within the the world of music uh, for a couple of decades now. Dean Budnick is joining me. Dean, how are you doing, man? Oh, Matt, it's a, it's a lovely evening. I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled to, to be here. Now, you are based in Rhode Island, correct? The beautiful state thereof, yes, indeed, sir. So I'm just down the road. I'm a, a two-hour drive down I-95 from you. I'm, I'm here in southwest Connecticut, so we are both uh, northeast residents, and um, weather's been a little rough in this spring, but uh, Rhode Island is a fantastic state. I, I actually happen to drive up there a few times a year to uh, to do some sports work as well. So uh, so you're living well in, in the smallest but one of the greatest states in the nation. I'm with you. Listen, you know, I, I did my time in Manhattan back in the day, and then wound up here, which is actually where I grew up. So oh, how about I am uh, by design. This, this is no accident that I'm in that I'm in Rhode Island. Very cool. All right, so we're gonna get to the the jam band scene, what it was, what it is, what it might become, but. Dean has actually been a very busy guy. In addition to you know running uh, a major music magazine, he has worked on a couple of books as well. Um, one based on the Grateful Dead, and one uh, on the life and times of John Popper, who was you know who was the front man uh, and probably the most famous harmonica player in the history of American music. Um, so <laughs> let's get to both of these real quick here because I, I would love to. Uh, Get a chance to read both of them. I will be rub front, though. I have not had a chance yet to uh, to crack open either one of them. But very rarely will you have someone take on two book projects. I mean, people might write two books at the same time, but it's rare that they'll come out so close to each other. So how did you fall into both of these? And, uh, you know, feel free to launch off whichever one you'd, you want to talk about first here. Well, at the end of the day, the, even though they both came out at the same time, uh, the, you know, so I worked with John Popper on his memoir, on his autobiography, and I also published this novel called Might As Well, which is set in the Grateful Dead scene of the late 80s. And I actually did not write them simultaneously. I was editing the versions of the Popper book when I was writing uh, the novel Might As Well. But, but really what happened was two things. In, in trying to balance all of the things going on in my life, the way that I was able to work on John's book was I would get up really, really early in the morning. And then I would work on that for a couple hours and then begin my work for Relics and Jambands.com. And I, I really became addicted to that. I hadn't, it, it had been a long while since I'd gotten up that early, you know, five to six and really sometimes get my kids off to school and then just start to dig in and try to have as much of a day as I could before I started on my day job. And after I finished really the first draft of, of the Popper book and I was waiting for some feedback from him and then sending it off to the publisher and waiting for some feedback from our editor over there, I had some time and it was during that time that Peter Shapiro, who was the, the person who put the Fare Thee Well shows together in Chicago, really started talking about it. This is before they'd announced it. He was definitely just getting it in motion, the idea of bringing the, you know, the founding members, the core four of the Grateful Dead together with Tran Stasio and it really just brought me back and thinking this probably would be the last time. And I still think it's going to be the last time that Phil Esch plays with, um, mm-hmm. with Bobby, Mickey and Billy, even though obviously they're still doing some gigs now as dead and company. And thinking back on that led me to the moment in time, which is the setting, which for, for might as well. So really working on popper for a long period and incidentally, the time, and, and maybe I didn't think of, this didn't occur to me until now, but you know, I first met John in 1989 wow. when he was playing at Wetlands and playing up at Columbia, where I was in uh, I was in law school there 
at the time then. And so I would see him, and he, there was a frat there that he would play with, play at. And there was also, he would play at the little teeny club on the, called the Plex on the Columbia University campus, and he played this event called Reality Fest. So maybe somewhere in the back of my head, uh, all of you know the fact that I was working on this and listening to Peter talk about bringing together the Grateful Dead guys to, to put together this show, maybe that's what led me back to 1989 and the, the Grateful Dead novel, but that's how it all uh, came together. Um, I'll circle back to the de- the Dead book before we segue to the jam band stuff, but let's focus on Popper for just a minute. Um, Blues Traveler, to a lot of people, uh, was the band that was big from, you know, 93 to 96 or 97, at least that was its peak, uh, you know, thanks to Run Around and Hook, its two biggest radio hits. Um, obviously, they had the appeal uh, or the unusual, uh, you know, from the out, from the out, you know, there wasn't a band like them in that, okay, they had a really big, <laughs> like physically big front man who could play harmonic unbelievably, and they were very different in that regard. But beyond that surface level of what Blues Traveler was and is, um, what sort of the, you know, a few of the threads that, that flow into, through, you know, Popper's memoir and, and beyond all of that, what are some of the interesting plot points within the book? Well, you know what, John, to my mind, and the way the book came about is I approached John. I emailed him one day. I was, I, I don't know. I, he had, he had done something for me at Relics, a year end reflection. And I just thought about it. He has such a unique voice. And I've known him for such a long period of time that I said to him, well, what do you think about, about writing your memoir? We could work on it together. Uh, we'll, you know, we can take it, take it slow over a period of time. And incidentally, the way we worked on it was he would call me from the road once a week, a lot of times on an off day, but sometimes it would be the day of a show. And he would just riff for an hour to two hours. And there's nothing like John, truly. He has such a unique perspective on things and such a great sense of humor just to hear him when he's in a good mood, nothing otherwise buying for his time or attention. And he just go, goes after it. So it was that part of the experience was everything that I hoped it would be. I, I mean, but, but John has done a lot of things over the year. I, you know, you mentioned 93, but again, I first saw them in 1989 and in New York city at, at uh, the venue wetlands preserve. And, when I saw them then, they were unlike any other band I had ever seen. And they filled that club, and there was a vibe and an intensity uh, of what they did that was not matched by, by actually, it was probably only matched by one other band that I saw there. And that band was the Disco Biscuits when they started playing there in 1998, 1999. So it was almost a decade later. And I was in there some nights when, at, at some point, you had to stop selling liquor. And so they, and they couldn't let people into the venue, but I was there when blues traveler would play and they would close the roll gates to the venue. So people couldn't get in. You had to be manually let out and the band just kept on going because they were, because they were feeling it. And there was nothing like that. They, they were the anchor of, of that, that downtown improvisational music scene. And, and as part of that, John ended up being the one who essentially founded and would co-own with, uh, with his manager, the Horde Tour. And he has a plenty, and the book has plenty of his stories about that. And it was initially about him getting together, calling the, the guys from Fish and Widespread Panic and Spin Doctors. He went to high school with Chris Barron. In fact, the way the Spin Doctors got started is because of John. He actually brought Chris Barron into the group as it was just coming, just coming together and connected him with Eric Shankman. So that's in there. And then, you know, the initial horde tour, that story. And then John reflects on certainly the success that came with four, but there, I, I think there are a lot of amusing and enlightening segments before that. He talks about his relationship with the Allman brothers band and, Greg Allman uh, requesting strongly if he were to sit in on on a song on the band's second album after he had done it, asking for 25% of the proceeds of the album and how John 
had to deal with that. And then you get to four and all the success and how that came about. And then after that, right, they, their, their bass player, Bobby Sheehan, uh, passed away. Um, clearly of a drug overdose. See, John doesn't want to. In the book, he says that one time he talked about it and Bob's mom uh, was unhappy with him. So he doesn't really go into much detail there. But he, it's, it's pretty well known and he alludes to it and sort of how the band came back after that. And then John's relationship with various people in Hollywood. There are some good stories of him hanging out and raging it a bit with, with Bill Murray and with uh, Woody Harrelson, who we also first met on the, uh, on the, on the set of the film Kingpin and, and Woody and uh, Matthew McConaughey. And so there's all that side of it. There's his political side, whatever one thinks about it. I mean, he played an impromptu show for Al Gore when Al Gore finally conceded the election to, to George Bush. And it's an interesting story about how that came out. And honestly, that's not, he's not someone who John supported in the election and sort of what he did there. And, and that's part of the book. And obviously John lost a lot of weight. And he talks about that. He was close to death at one point and how he had the, the gastric bypass and what all that meant for him. There was a period of time when he was injured in a motorcycle accident and was in a wheelchair for two years. And he sort of talks about that as well and relays some stories, particularly, you know, there was a night with fish. I was actually there in at Roseland ballroom in which he, as a prank, sat on stage in his wheelchair under a tarp the entire night and just threw it off at the end and started playing with them. Or the time that, you know, he pretended at a horde show, a horde show again with fish that he was, um, well, the first time he did it in 1992, he pretended he uh, jumped, you know, when fish was doing their trampoline, he jumped on it and he pretended that it broke. And people thought that he really broke it because he was such a big guy. And he's like, okay, I'm going to get that next year. And so the next time around, he was on a wheelchair and he hoisted up above like a giant outdoor trampoline. So, okay, this is the year we're going to do it. And then he, they, you know, he went up there, pretended he was being dropped down from the top of, of an amphitheater and then crashed through it again, just when the lights went out because curfew was up at the venue and people thought that he'd really hurt himself. And so there are all these, you know, there's a chapter devoted to fish in there because there's a chapter devoted to Howard Stern. So, I mean, there's John is a really, really fascinating individual. As I say, just just a unique perspective and a rich sense of humor. And so it was it was fun. Mike, it was just fun ripping with him, you know, suggesting ideas and hearing what he had to say, and then writing it down and and editing it. And then I sent it to him, and then we walked through it. We did we did a line by line reading over the phone again, uh, and uh, sorted it out and, and worked through it, and then ultimately submitted that to the, you know, to our editor at the press and then did that again to, to finish work on the book. So it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. All in all. Yeah. He seems like a pretty interesting character. The, uh, the popper memoir again is suck and blow. If, uh, if you're, you know, if you were into the horde scene, like blues traveler, popper is just a very interesting, genuine guy. Um, definitely something worth checking out. So, and then you write might as well, which you're, you're, a savant when it comes to the dead, and this is a fictionalized account of basically the greater Grateful Dead scene into the late 80s, correct? I mean, and what inspired you to 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 write this? I mean, this is, you know, you know, the last stages, and I know Jerry dies in 95, but this is, you know, this is the last era, so to speak, of the Grateful Dead who formed in the 60s, and, you know, obviously their legacy is just immense, but, uh, but what was the driving force behind it, and if you could kind of give a nut graph on, on what the book is about, uh, what is that? Sure. Well, I would say there's two parts of how, how it came about and what inspired me. And the first really is thinking back when before Peter had announced Shapiro had announced Fare Thee Well, just sort of thinking back on that era and realizing that there weren't very many of my colleagues at Relics who actually had ever seen The Grateful Dead. You know, and, I, and to me, The Grateful Dead is, with Jerry Garcia, that's The Grateful Dead. And there have been a lot of interesting things after, and I have a lot of respect for them. And I've been, you know, enjoyed quite a, quite a number of, 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 you know, Phil Lesh and Friends shows. And I think Bobby did some, did some great stuff and still do some great stuff 
with with Rat Dog and you know with his uh, you know his an upcoming sort of cowboy album that's coming out and and, and all that's going to be going to be great. But the Grateful Dead really ended in 1995, and there weren't a lot of people at Relics who'd ever seen the Grateful Dead, so that was in the back of my mind. But beyond that, there was there was an evening in 1989, I, you know October 14th. 1989 at the Meadowlands, right? At the time it was called the Brendan Byrne Arena. And then it was called a number of other, you know, had a number of other names that venue over the years. And I I was at that show and it was at that particular performance that a member of, and she wasn't in the audience because I don't think he made it into a show. A a gentleman by the name, a a teenager, I think he's 19 or 20, by the name of Adam Katz, mysteriously passed away. And the belief is, although this was never proven, was that some someone involved with security at the venue physically roughed him up in such a way that uh, that, that led directly to his demise. And and I've always thought about that. I was at that show, and there was something that I don't I don't. There was something that night that just seemed a little bit off to me. There was something in the air, and I, I don't say this really very often. It's not something that happens to me quite a bit, and it's not because I knew that Adam passed away, because I was with a number of friends, and we all had the same experience at that show, and frankly, after that show, that just something didn't feel right. It was, it's a, it was a pretty good show, all in all, musically, but there was just a weird vibe in the air, and we found out, not right away, we probably found out a week or two later, that that this that this that this you know kid, uh, this gentleman Adam Cass had had passed away, and that's in the again to this day the crime hasn't been solved, and I do come back to that on occasion, maybe on a long drive into New York City, you know, it's late or back from New York City to Rhode Island after I've gone to a show at Brooklyn Bowl, and I have plenty of time in, uh, ahead of me. Sometimes I'll just think back and, and wonder. What happened to him? What what was that? And why did I feel the way that that I felt that night? And so that's a little bit heavy. And the book really isn't so heavy. But that was the starting point for the book. That that was the inciting incident. And what the book is, it, it's told through the perspectives of seven different people, uh, male and female, who are at this hype. Again, not specifically that show, but but a show around that same time. In, uh, in essentially East Rutherford, New Jersey, and how they experienced it and how it comes together and what transpires. I, that, I, that's really the overview of, uh, of what the book's about. Now, okay, so the dead for three decades, you know, they establish, um, you know, a massive following. It's actually, you know, it's, it's both mainstream and cult at the same time. Um, can and I'll use this to kind of transition to what the episode this episode is about in general and just kind of the jam band scene. Um, there can't ever be another band that did what the Dead did, right? No matter like from what we are now and, and what the the music scene is now going forward, it's it's it seems that they were pioneers in so many ways that it would be impossible to kind of replicate the model they had and the success they had and the way they did it just by you know from any number of pragmatic and practical ways dean in terms of how we consume music now into how just different uh the climate was in america when they started in the 60s and on the west coast in san francisco yeah i think there's no doubt when you think about both sides of what you said on one hand just in terms of culturally sociologically historically what the grateful dead meant where they you know they came out of those acid tests that Ken Kesey held out in, you know, out in the, the Bay Area and how that, those acid tests and, and what that represented and the visuals that evolved from that are, are really essential to the great, the Grateful Dead ultimately to, to their live show in terms of, you know, what did the stage look like? And not only that, I mean, Jerry Garcia himself has always said that the, the thing that was important to him about playing the acid tests was you could play or not play, and both choices were equally valid. And I really do think that informed the aesthetic and the ethos of the band. And, and coming out of the culture of San Francisco and 
you know, how, however you want to characterize that particular moment in time, you know, in talking about hippies or, or talking about the youth movement or any of that, that's part and parcel of who the Grateful Dead were before you even get into the music. I mean, actually, to my mind, that's what interested me in writing the book and thinking about as somebody who was out there, certainly not from that era, seeing shows in the 1980s and, and talking to some of these people and thinking about the historical context in which the Grateful Dead emerged. All of that, all of those layers that came with the experience, I can't imagine. I mean, they're, they're unique. They're sweet, sweet, generous. There's no one else out there that is going to come out of that particular scene and have that particular impact. Beyond that, in terms of just the improvisational part of, of what they do, because they, they toured the way they did, because they varied set lists as they did and brought all of that to bear as well, I do think that anyone who sort of steps into that to some degree is a refraction of, of, of the Grateful Dead and, 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 what they, and what they meant, which is not to say that other bands who aren't doing that aren't equally valid and creative and satisfying, but it's just, you know, the Grateful Dead were their own thing. And I don't, you know, there's going to be nothing, there is nothing like the Grateful Dead. It's like, it's like you know, Bill Graham says, there's nothing like a, great, a Grateful Dead show. So I, for sure, I, I altogether agree with you there. Uh, I in uh, the season one of this podcast, I did an episode on fish overall with my colleague actually at CBS, Will Brinson, who's a very well-learned, well-versed fish fan. We did get to just a little bit of the dead fish comparisons, but I, I'll ask you. I mean, that has been something that I th- I think fish has you know it, it was put upon them, and they and you know obviously they they were influenced by the dead to a certain degree, and I think they've embraced that while not trying to really replicate what the dead was. But in terms of the fish and dead uh, comparisons, you know, correlation similarities, do you believe that's, uh, you know, overstated or has been overstated over the years? Or is it, is it on point? Are they, were they rightfully, you know, titled to be the next iteration, the next generation? Because basically as the dead, you know, fish started in 83, but they didn't really start, really touring the country and, and becoming uh, more of a, a mainstream underground act, if you will, Dean, until the early 90s, and then they really take off just as, you know, Jerry dies, unfortunately. But do you buy that, that they were the next Grateful Dead, or, or do you kind of push back on that a little bit? Well, so, okay, let me say, so because I grew up in New England, I, I was exposed to fish very rarely. I saw my first fish show in 1987, really, really early on in their career. And what, what was interesting to me when I look back and think about that time is there actually weren't, there weren't hippies who, who were at those shows or people who sort of think of, of jam band fans as like, it actually was a lot of sort of artsy freaks is how I would really compare it. Just people who you could imagine who went to places like RISD, who went to art school, who had just a different approach to how they conducted themselves. And eventually uh, fish started to started to acquire a, a following and really I think for a number of years were at the core of the jam band scene but but I do remember when fish was coming up and there was and still the grateful dead was playing that there were a lot of grateful dead fans I think most of the grateful dead fans that I knew absolutely were not interested in fish and this is you know late 80s on into the early 90s and they really didn't they didn't like the lyrics they thought they were silly they thought they were they didn't have the same soul to them in the sense that you know that deep jerry ballad late in the second set how the show sometimes the grateful dead show could all all just tip on that on the great on the jerry garcia ballad that would come out of space in the second set and then that would be really, really heavy. And then there'd be a moment of liberation that would come out of that, that would emerge from that particular song and close out the night. And people who were, you know, deadheads and were into the, the dead or following the, the band or into the dead scene around that time or drawn to the music, most everyone that I knew really did not like Fish. Thought they were, could see the talent in them, but, but just thought they were too esoteric and didn't really have the, the, the gravitas in terms of their songwriting. And I, I think over time, 
certainly I think you know, by, by the time you get to farmhouse at the very least, fish did start to exhibit that. And fish are still pretty young in the late 80s on into the 90s. But the one thing that fish fans would say at that particular era is that fish was, was out on the edge in a way that the Grateful Dead weren't. And I think that's, I think that's true. I think there were some amazing moments really when you get on into the nineties, I remember May of 1994, I flew down to Texas to do the three show run with fish. And one of the shows that I was at on uh, May 7th, 94 is the show at the bomb factory. And essentially the entire second set was their song tweezer, uh, a, you know, 60 plus version, 69 minute version of their song tweezer that would go in and out of pieces yeah. of different things. And I really think that that liberated them in a lot of ways in, in that they presented for a live audience. And honestly, being there, I can tell you, a live audience that didn't kind of know what was going on because these are people from Dallas who hadn't really seen a lot of fish up to that moment in, the, in, in their lives. And this just let go and showed people what it was like to go to, to be at a fish rehearsal or what they would do to amuse themselves. I, I really think from there, that's when they cracked things open and started down the path and really taking things pretty deep, especially with the song Tweezer. You know, there's a Bangor Tweezer uh, from 95. I was at it. I remember very, very, there's another one uh, from uh, New York State around that period in June of 95. So, I, I mean, certainly there is there are similarities in that improvisation is part of it. Uh, Fish started selling mail order tickets. If you want to look at that, they allowed taping. So in a, in, in, if you abstract it out in, in that sense, one can see how the lessons of the Grateful Dead, at least in terms of the structure of the business and the nature of, of, how, of, of how they approach the show with two sets and the like, and Fish pretty much never had openers in the way that the Grateful Dead very, very rarely had openers. So there are some similarities there, but I think that they really are two unique entities. And quite honestly, going back to the, where, where we started, I mean, I can remember when the discussion was with Trey, you know, would Trey want to come back and play with the four members, the core four of the Grateful Dead for these fairly well shows. And I have to admit, I was, wasn't so sure. I, I might, yeah, I would say I was a little skeptical that Peter was going to be able to pull it off, but uh, you know, but to, but to his credit, he, he did. And for a lot of people, I think that closed the circle, you know, closed the loop in in affirming that at least on some level, in terms of approach and aesthetic, that Fish and the Grateful Dead certainly have some some core similarities. I think you could argue, in terms of the jam band scene, Dean, that uh, the 90s were the peak um, in many ways just because I know there are still plenty of of bands that will qualify as jam bands that are still active today, and we're going to get into that. But I don't know. To me, it doesn't seem like there are as many, and it's not as... Uh, desire to scene as it once was. I feel like, um, like I love Umphreys McGee. Uh, I think that they are fantastic. I actually think that they might be the most uh, nimble, talented touring band out there right now. They're just in- insanely good. Um, but w- would you agree that the the jam band scene itself in 2016 is not as thriving? as it was in 1996, and if you disagree, why? You know, I, listen, I will all together agree with you. I, that was a moment when it really was coalescing, I think, for a lot of people in terms of watching fish emerge and a number of, uh, of younger bands, you know, bands like, let's say, Mo or the disco biscuits in that particular space and uh, the deep banana banana blackout, you know, the string cheese incident (laughs) still plays, but these are bands like Mo. I love Mo, but this is not a new band. Like they still play, but there's, there's, you know, there are Umphreys has been around since the late nineties. Now we just don't seem to have bands cropping up with as much, um, 
force behind them and as much inspiration, as much of a following now as it seems like they were having in that 90s cultivation scene, Dean? I, listen, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, but I mean, here's the thing, right? So, I, you know, I founded Chamans.com in 1998, and it's always been a little bit of an ebb and flow over the years. Although, in general, the mainstream media has never been all together you know, that, uh, that supportive. They tend to be rather downright missive. I would agree. Yes. That's why, but I'll tell you what, that's one thing that's interesting. When, um, when I was, when the Grateful Dead were still the Grateful Dead and they were out playing, the mainstream media was altogether dismissive of them too. But now 20 plus years have passed and, you know, people see them now as, as the forefathers of, of, of this scene. And more importantly, people who for many, many years, I think dismissed, which was really at the core of their sound, which was their songcraft and, and their, 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 their original compositions that, that people, you know, that sort of never really gave them, I think, their due. I think now the media has come to acknowledge that they really are part of the great American songbook. And I think the fact that, you know, looking at the current issue of, of, of Relics, where we have, you know, Bob Weir with two members of the National, and the fact that the National is at the core of this. 59 song uh, compilation, taking a look, you know, interpreting the music of the Grateful Dead, I think really affirms that. And that sort of changed over time. But, but beyond that, yeah, listen, 96, I would, you know, that particular era, 96, I would say maybe through 2000 is, is really, really fertile and bands are, are finding their way. And at some point when you're, when you're, when you're inside of that and, you're part of a, a new generation that's making music in a way that on some level really is. If you think about what the Disco Biscuits were doing in, in terms of, uh, you know, live Tronica or even what Street, what Street Shoes Incident was doing by, you know, blending bluegrass back when Bill Nursey only was playing acoustic guitar and hadn't even thought to pick up an electric guitar with that band. But yet they were doing, you know, yet they were covering all sorts of groups from the rock spectrum on through sort of, you know, traditional Bill Monroe, Bill Monroe bluegrass. I think when all of these things were really in, in their gestational stage, that, that there's a lot to be said that there was excitement on both sides of the stage. And I think in terms of the present, it's, it's, it's up to, you know, what to some degree might be considered two generations removed from there to, to start to build and, and think about something new. But I, you know, I, I think everything ebbs and flows. And uh, and we'll yet see what comes out of that. Why do you think the term jam band has been so derided? It's been it's been a term, in my opinion, that you know even there have been acts that that have uh, jam tendencies that will shy away from that. Um, I well, first I think Dave Matthews Band is probably the most dominant example of that in terms of what the band was back when it started out and then what it became. Um, Derek Trucks band. I mean, I would I would consider what Derek Trucks does to be jam band like, but the, he is you know famously said he's not you know too keen on that. Um, Primus in a certain way as well. I don't understand why the term has become. Um, I wouldn't say taboo, Dean, but it, it it is weird. It's almost like if you're part of that scene, there's an element to your music that isn't legitimate. And to me, it's surprising that in 2016 that still exists. And I don't know if it's going to require uh, simply a matter of time like it did with the dead or if there is going to need to be another kind of uh, an outfit or a band or a group that uh, perhaps transcends the genre while at the same time lifting it up. But I, I don't know. To me, I'm a little surprised that it's still something of a oh, you're a jam band fan, and, and because of that, you're not taken seriously. That doesn't happen with hip-hop anymore, Dean. It doesn't happen with, even like there's poptimism now, even pop music, okay? If you say that you love Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and Beyonce and, and Drake and all that, you're much less likely to be to be laughed off or sneered at than if you say, yeah, no, I, I love Mo, I listen to Fish, uh, STS9. I don't, I don't quite get why, especially when the musicianship is there, and I understand that it can be a little, you know, overdone, and people in, the, in these bands and can just people will just think it's insufferable that a band will play a 19-minute song. But even within that, I don't know. There's just something been interesting with me, Dean, 
that this just they have not been able to shed some sort of negative connotation with the with the label of a jam band. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, but here what I would here's what I would say to that. Now, and understand, like in 1998, I wrote a book called Jam Band. I started JamBands.com. For better or worse, I would uh, had a, I had a role in, if not uh, if not naming it, certainly in popularizing the name. And from my perspective, again, it's it's ebb and flow. I see bands that didn't want to be called the term back in the day, and widespread panic is one that I can think of. Mo was actually another who are now altogether willing to to embrace it. Listen, it's I think some people think just the name itself is sort of doofy, and, and I get that, you know. But when I when I wrote the book, when I started the site, that was simply what, what we called all of these groups. You know, when I was writing the book, I actually gave it some thought as to what I was going to call this book that, that came out in the, uh, you know, it came out in the fall of 98. I had, a, I had an amazing book release party at Wetlands. The Disco Biscuits played upstairs and the Slip played downstairs, two of my favorite young bands at, at, at the time. And it was, it was a pretty, it was a, it was a pretty wild event and a, and a fun night. And those are sort of two sides to my mind. Of, of what that scene was about and, and evolving into then. But I, so I, you know, I think some people don't like, some people don't like any term ascribed to their music. There are any number of people you would describe as jazz players who don't want to be thought of as jazz musicians or even blues artists who don't want to be called just blues artists. I, I think that musicians sort of live in fear of being characterized by one particular word or term or genre, because in their minds, I really believe, you know, they're just making music. If you could characterize them just as musicians, they'd be altogether happy, although that's sort of hard to do when you have to describe what's happening on the stage or, 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 in, the, or in the studio. Now, over time, I think there's no doubt there still is the stigma that, that you mentioned in all of the stereotypes that you can imagine, I think do still exist. I think it's hard, it's hard to break from them. Although, you know, the public reception that the Grateful Dead have received over the past couple of years, I do think starts to help. I would say there's no doubt in my mind that that band's reputation has been resuscitated in a lot of ways. And I think there are other bands that are, you know, that are coming on the heels of that. And we'll, uh, maybe I'm an optimist, but we'll, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. I agree with you, um, and I and I, I I don't love the fact that this will probably be something that I don't know legitimizes is not the right term because I do feel in many ways that uh, a lot of what these bands do is respected in many circles within music, but like the Dead are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and to me, even though DMB is not necessarily a jam band, they're still connected to that. And Fish, if those bands ultimately get to those levels of prestige uh, and enter into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think that it just it enters a discussion within the critical world that I think will eventually lift it up even more so. And I do think, I guess we can transition here, I expect, you mentioned the ebbs and flows, Dean. I don't know if we'll ever hit the peak that we were in the mid-90s. I wouldn't be surprised if it happened again because I think there's a certain element to the scene where you've got uh, you know, call them free spirits or whatever. People enjoy going to see live music. They always have, they always will. But within the jam band scene itself um, and the culture there within and how it can kind of get its hooks in you where you fall in love with a certain band and I got to see them, they play a different set every night and I'm chasing this song or I'm chasing to fulfill every song that's been on this album or whatever. I feel that within the next five to ten years or so, that at least I hope for it, we will have acts we might barely know now maybe they haven't even formed that will that will revive this again because live music at least in terms of you know the the concert festival scene right now while it's not centered around these kinds of groups they're still very much involved in so many of them every summer i just think even if we don't have another horde tour or anything like that i do believe there will be another batch of bands like this that are instrumentation driven that will develop hardcore followings. And we might see something, a revival of this, you know, 25 years post, uh, after, you know, the fish's heyday is passed and whatnot. What do you think? Yeah. Well, listen, I, I think ultimately what it comes down to is the way 
these bands and these scenes develop is you have young people who are drawn to this particular music. Fish is their favorite band, let's say, or, or String Cheese or, or Panic or Mo, and they're, they're, you know, these people are, are teenagers. And they start to come into their own as players and musicians and try to define what they want to do with their own music. And so you start to see people coming up. I, I remember when Umphreys McGee played at the very first Bonnaroo back in 2002. And Brendan Bayless is one of the two guitar players in Umphreys. He had this moment where he was invited to sit in with Mo. And he had been a big fan of Mo when he was a teenager and actually, as I understand it, had sent Mo a tape of, of him playing their song, Rebubula. And then he had the opportunity to sit in with them. And over the years, obviously, they've had, they maintained a close relationship, right? They do the summer camp festival together. But, I mean, I mean that's just one example of that. You look at the band like Talk. I think they were heavily influenced by Umphreys McGee. And now they're out on tour with Umphreys McGee. And you can see that. I think that there will continue to be a new generation of young players who will come out of this scene, who've seen what the, maybe even not the Grateful Dead. Maybe they were never, they weren't into that. And maybe not even Fish, who knows? Maybe it was just the next generation, whether it was the electronica side with the Biscuits or, you know, maybe the, the proggier side with Umphreys McGee or the, the more straight ahead rock realm with Mo. And then they'll start to form bands, and, and that's where the, the next level, the next generation, the next excitement will be. And since all of these bands still have audiences and are still out touring and have, you know, presumably these young future musicians going to their shows, I have faith that that is yet going to happen. That's a really good point and a really connection, good connection there. Um, all right, let's have a little fun here. So later on in 2016, there's going to be this old cella thing, which I guess is called the Desert Trip, and it's this huge, massive festival. It's got the Stones, Dylan, McCartney, Neil Young, Roger Waters, and the Who. Those those are six huge headliners. That are two per night. So I'm restricting you to the jam band label here, though. So if you could create a dream, this is you know any all-time bands. You get three nights, two headliners apiece. I know the Dead will obviously be in there. Um, but who are you pairing with with who? Uh, what bands? You get six total jam bands, all time. Dean, who are you going with? Well, let me ask you. You said I can use the Grateful Dead, so it's Living or Dead? No, it's yeah, it's all time. So it's the Dead with Jerry. Okay, so I can pick any. Well, because I tell you one. I mean, the, the first band that jumps to my mind is I, I pick I pick Miles Davis, Bitches Brew Band, right? Which technically, I suppose, isn't isn't a you know John Goffin, which, which isn't a quote unquote jam band, but I think is, is just as influential as any band out there. And frankly, I'd put John Goffin on double duty. I'd have him play with Mahavishnu one night. Ooh. Okay, so I have right, so I'd have the uh, the Allman Brothers band with 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 Dwayne Allman, clearly one night. Maybe I'd maybe I'd pair them with the with the Bitches Brew band. Okay, and then I would. So that's one night. Uh, you know what? Grateful, the Grateful Dead. This is this is actually it's really interesting. Okay, you have to have fish. I like yeah. that fish. I like to have Miles. I like to have Miles Vishnu. Um, I like to have the Allman Brothers band. And you know, that, you know, honestly, you mentioned uh, Derek Trucks earlier. I I'd love to have Derek there. Maybe we pair up. Maybe we get like a Clapton. I don't know if it's too on the nose. And you'd have you'd have clapped him with like you know the Derek and the Dominoes, yeah. And then you'd have uh, you know like Tedeschi Trucks Band one night because I you know because I can't have Derek in my version. Unless I could have Derek and uh, in the earth with Dwayne Allman in that version, since we're you know if we're using some time elision where it doesn't really matter. I, I don't know, but so somewhere somewhere in all of in all of that, I think it would. Uh, it would come together. And if I could, if we could have, you know, some other people on the bill, I'd throw in some great blues players, you know, somebody like, like Freddie King, who I think in terms of, you know, instrumental uh, improvisation is altogether under, under, I mean, I throw in all the Kings. Like, you know, I, I'm cheating. I can't, I'm not going with six anymore. <laughs> maybe I'd have, maybe I'd have, I'd have one King a night open. Then we get BB, we get Albert King, we get Freddie King. And then we sort of uh, otherwise uh, assemble, 
Uh, so, you know what? I, I guess if I'm having, uh, I'd also try to get weather report in there too. Uh, that's if just I'm, a great uh, poll right there. That is good stuff. <laughs> I mean, honestly, so I, yeah, without a doubt, weather report's a great call. Maybe the, you know, honestly, one of the most talented bass players ever in that outfit, uh, Jaco Pistorius. So I can't, uh, I can't disagree with that at all. You know, I, I don't know. To, to my mind, that's that's what the jam man scene is all about. It, it's blending blending those genres. Listen, I wouldn't mind. I take, I, you know, this isn't necessarily pure improvisation, but I wouldn't mind taking, you know, a classic version of Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys, you know, or, or maybe early, flat, you know, Flatten Scruggs, get him in there, or, you know, somebody, you know, with, with some young Bill McCory with, uh, with, with, with Bill Monroe. I mean, I, I think, oh, you know, but but of course, I, I probably have to. Have, now I'm saying I, I'd have to have some cold, right? So since, since time doesn't matter, I'd have to have like some great Coltrane with with Elvin Jones in there too. I, so I couldn't do. I couldn't. I, I'd beg for. You know, I, I'd go into. <laughs> uh, you I'd are go so into breaking pocket. the rules right now. I gave you six. And you I know that. Off. <laughs> like well, so, so, here's the thing, right? So well, once I had the power to 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 distort time so that it didn't matter. Yeah. Um, I would put all these bands on and, and I'd, I'd eat the cost of bending time so that, uh, you know, I'd lose money on the bill and that would be okay because it would be so altogether uh, satisfying that, I, that I'd be happy. But okay, since you posed the question, I have to toss it back at you. Uh, so what six would I go with? Um, yeah. I would go with my favorites. So I would say, and I'm going to stick to six, uh, Fish would be on there, Mo would be on there, Will you give me Bella Fleck and the Flecktones? Would they qualify in your opinion? Sure. Which uh, which version? Uh, the version with Coffin on sax. The, their peak version. Yeah. I'll go them three. Humphreys um, four. I'm removing DMB because I just don't consider them a jam band. Um, I would say... Oh man, that's tough. If I'm going final two, I will go Almond Brothers again. See, they're like the ultimate. Almond Brothers are so interesting to me. Actually, I'll I'll, fin- I'll finish that thought once I pick my sixth. And then my sixth, I'll say. If you give me Galactic, I'll give I'll say Galactic. Although they're I wouldn't say they're jam bandy. Although I I love when they really um, do. That. If you if you let me go, actually Neil Young, Crazy Horse. That's that's probably my sixth there. And those would be the six I would ah. go with. Um, what's interesting to me is the Allman Brothers, and I can tie this in with the dead. So I've talked with a few people over the years, uh, Bomani Jones, who does, uh, such great work on ESPN and is a, is a really good music writer as well. We've talked before about who's the best band in America's history, because the interesting thing is America has created a lot of really talented individual artists, but some of the best bands, in fact, most of the best bands, um, or at least most, you know, commercially and critically lauded, they've all come from across the pond, mostly, not all of them, but I'm talking about like upper tier, highest echelon. And to me, we've actually discussed, you know, it could be, because uh, uh, I wouldn't consider, I would, even though Springsteen has the E Street band, it's this weird thing where he's separated from them enough where I just can't consider them like one full outfit. I actually think the Almond Brothers or the Dead, and the and you know there are other ones that are that kind of push up against that. Uh, but to me, those are the two. And if you want to both include them as jam bands, you know they really have both have a a really strong uh, say in toward being like the best purely American band in the history of the country. What do you think about that, Dean? Well, you know, the only other band I would can maybe toss into the hat there actually is the band. Yeah, but they're, uh, they're not they're, even and they're not even from. I mean, they've got Canadian ties. Well, so like, I was going to say that you got, you got you got Levon, but 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 yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, but yeah, exactly. So it's I don't know. I've always been. It's 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 interesting how we've had so many interesting artists over the years, but in terms of longevity and strength of catalog. It's it, there's a bit of irony there in that the Almond Brothers and the Grateful Dead represent this specific genre that has uh, slowly but surely been more accepted, but it's taken decades to to get there. You know. Hey, listen, I tell you what's so fa- I mean, what's fascinating about the Almond Brothers band is just you know who knows? You know, Dwayne died so young. I know it's really who knows? honestly, it's one of the biggest. Like every death is a tragedy. Don't get me wrong, but I always wonder what they would have been if he did not die so young. 
Yeah, because I just feel like he was headed into, he was exploring more and more jazz. And I think it would have been interesting to see what what he would have been. And the fact that, that Derek Trucks, who for my money is pretty darn close to the best, if one wanted to somehow, you know, quantify and qualify the best guitar players in America right now. He's really on my short list. Um, you know, he's just so much older now at this point than, than, than Dwayne ever was. And there's, and you, one has seen how his sound has evolved in a variety of ways. And it would have been fascinating to see how, you know, how, how Dwayne sound would have evolved. So, so too, like the Allman Brothers band, right? Obviously they have that classic lineup that existed for just a few years. But then if you, you jump ahead uh, to the lineup at the very end with, with Derek and Warren Haynes or something to that, and there was that brief time when it was Derek and Jimmy Herring, like in 2000, and that was some of the craziest Allman Brothers band shows. Those, those were some of the craziest Allman Brothers that I, ever, that I ever saw. I mean, they were just doing some all sorts of, of, of fascinating Stuff. But in terms of lineage and, and what they saw in catalog and just breadth of, of what they've accomplished, certainly I think those two bands seem like pretty good candidates. Interesting. Um, well, listen, uh, it's been a, a pleasure talking with you. I definitely want to get you back on a future episode. Maybe we'll just do an absolute deep dive into the dead in general because there's just so so much there like just beyond um but listen he's written two books uh might as well which is the grateful dead book and then suck and blow which is the memoir with john popper he's dean budnick hey pick up a relics magazine and go on to relics.com read the stuff you were terrific man thank you so much i appreciate everything and we'll definitely chat down the road cool yeah hey now you know next time when there's when there's a ticketing controversy we'll talk about my book ticket masters and all that next we absolutely can do that, that can get, yeah get dean's done fired up on Dean's done a lot of stuff, and that's actually like a, a really, like it's 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 a public issue, and uh, we'll definitely get into that as well. I appreciate it so much, man. Thank you. Awesome, cool. Thanks for having me.